I was always sure of my finance skills or you know hard skills, but I always thought tomorrow if I want to be a founder myself, I need to learn how to pitch. I need to learn how to motivate employees or just be charismatic. One of the things that we always hear is, "Hey, you guys must be strong in Asia." But really, yes, we are strong in Asia. We are market leaders in, in Singapore and Asia. But really, the idea is, this business is very global in nature. For example. We have hundred plus of our own entities, which is bigger than our biggest competitor. Hi, I'm Amanda Kua, and this is One More Scoop. Here, we're sitting down with Southeast Asia's top founders, executives, and investors to have honest conversations about their personal journeys. And find out what really happens behind the scenes. Sagar Katri is the co-founder and CEO of Multiplier, a comprehensive platform to take care of your global team's payroll, taxes, social contributions, local insurance policies, and more. They last raised a sixty million dollars Series B in twenty twenty two. Hi, Sagar. Nice to meet you today. It's been a while since I first came across Multiplier. I think that was twenty twenty two during the most recent fundraise that you guys publicized. So very excited to speak with you today. Amanda, it's nice to see you as well, and great to be here. I think I've listened to a few of the podcasts you're on before, and. I think how we always start with the One More School podcast is really asking about someone's background. So could you tell us a bit about your childhood? I know you grew up in a small town in India, so I'd love to hear more about that. Yeah, yeah. so I think, you know, the focus on fundraising and companies so much that sometimes you lose the roots where you come from. So thanks for asking that question. I love that question. So I grew up in a, a small town in the central of India, in the in the middle of India. It's called Nagpur. Uh, post that, I moved to Bombay, where I did my graduation, which is IIT Bombay, one of the reputed institutes in India. And then post that, I moved to Tokyo, where I spent a couple of years doing investment banking, covering China, Korea, Japan, Taiwan, yeah, more uh, you know M and A for East Asia, and then they moved me as an expat to Singapore, uh, where I was still doing more oil and gas, but for Southeast Asia region. So I spent a lot of time in Philippines, Vietnam, Indonesia, and so on and so forth. Post that, I I uh, worked for a, a startup as a, a head of cop dev, so looking after finance, fundraising, investor relationship, and international expansion. You know, that's where I essentially got the idea of multiplier, where I was expanding to the countries like Australia and Japan, and I found it extremely difficult. And that's how multiplier came about. So I want to ask about your childhood growing up in that small town. Did you stay there all your life up until graduation? I mean, up until university? And what was it like in the earlier days of your childhood, especially growing up around your parents? And I don't know how many siblings you had. No, that's a that's a very interesting question. So I I stayed there till there till till uh, right before my graduation. So I graduated in Mumbai, and it's a very interesting uh, question because I think a lot of your traits as a founder as a CEO 
subjects decided based on your where you've grown up and and the challenges that you face so i think i come from a very very modest family growing up it was always a dream to even go out of the country it was always a dream to even go to a great university and so on and so forth what that also you know instills in you in is the resilience is the drive to achieve something big in life i have one more brother we talked about siblings who is also from iit bombay and then now he is one of the senior government bureaucrats sometimes it's quite funny because i'm i you know people joke about one one brother is in private sector the other brother is in the public sector but really i think what has really you know instilled that feeling of achieving or achieving never stopping is how we grew up and how our parents raised us and we always thought hey we you know there are so many opportunities in the world that we can have access to and we really need to work hard to to get to where we are today and what kind of influence did your parents have on you what kind of jobs did they have i think you said they had their own small businesses but what are the things that they did that influenced you and how did they sort of live their lives as you were growing up yeah so you know when i was young and my parents are both very well educated and both were teachers and then they left that i mean my father left that to start his own business and my mom was after i was born was largely a housewife but i think really you know growing up i always felt they were being too strict and i always felt i could not appreciate the emphasis on education that they always had growing up right so whatever we have today undoubtedly we owe it to them i think in earlier days as a child the habits that you pick up the way your career gets shaped is largely determined by you know how your parents essentially emphasize on the right activities so from very early days we always top rankers in everywhere we studied plus also we you know we've always been involved in a lot of extracurricular activities so we would let's say i used to play volleyball professionally for my district Uh, my brother would win all these mathematics olympiads and whatnot so the emphasis on education as well as non education activities was largely there from day one and i think that's where this drive really came out of achieving and never stopping and then i think something i want to ask you as well is when you were about to start university what kind of goals did you have for yourself did you have a certain career set in mind a certain life you had set in your mind at the time or was there just nothing planned or hoped for at that time no i think you know to be very honest with you where we grew up we didn't even know about our university and i think for our viewers the university that i come from is is like one of the most privileged universities in india that's where all your you know the sundar pichais of the world comes from like it's a very privileged indian university iit actually we didn't even know that such a university exists growing up really yes and right about the time my brother was starting to apply for this universities when he got to know about it and i, I would say at some level because our parents were well educated we were there are some subjects like maths we always felt very gifted to get into that university you really need to go through one of the toughest examinations in the world and both of us went through that and 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 cleared it and when we got into it i think the first the emotion was hey this is really difficult the other colleagues in the university or students were you know from they have been thinking about this university and getting into it from their childhood 
and here we are just you know woke up and just came inside so we felt super underprepared we really felt we were out of our depths and largely i would say you know our language skills were not up to the mark so you know the first year of the university both of us really spent learning english properly and what not so it was an interesting journey but once you went inside there and you know you spend quite a bit of time and if you have the right drive and if you put in a lot of efforts and hard work the opportunities that the university presents is mapy for example i used to play volleyball professionally representing the university i went to us for my exchange in new university of michigan i got one of the best banking jobs one of the most well paid jobs sometimes i joke that my first month salary was more than the entire money that i spent throughout my life on my education it was quite insane So you're saying that you didn't even know sort of how difficult or how prestigious the university was until maybe you stepped into the examination room or maybe in the weeks leading up to the exam? Absolutely. So roughly you need to prepare for 1-2 years and that's where we got to know that there's such an examination there's such an university and I think largely if you go to that university 99% of the time your future is secure. I see. So that's that's that was an interesting thing. And how did going to IIT Bombay sort of shape you personally? Did it change your career goals for yourself? Did it change how you viewed the world? How how did it shape you? So, you know, suddenly let's say you come from a small place and suddenly now you are let's say in Harvard or a MIT equivalent, right? And you you're sitting next to some of the smartest people in the rooms. people who come from very privileged background who have been thinking about getting into this university forever so it really throws you off guard but as i said if you're really driven and if you like to be in settings where you are perhaps the least smart person in the room which i absolutely love you make the most out of it so the kind of opportunities that are available to students is insane so you know you can excel in sports you can obviously excel in education because it's it's a very premium university for education you can excel in research you can excel in debates you can exchange you can excel in leadership so for example i used to be the head of placements at iit which is i used to lead a team of 300 people well you were uh, in university and i had my own off while i was in university oh, okay. unlike unlike global city what iit does is instead of people applying for jobs the companies come to campus so let's say they will be day 1 day 2 day 3 of recruitment it goes till day 15 day 1 slot one would be the mckinsey's bcg's blackstones of the world google facebooks of the world and they come and literally fight for students so the entire setup gets organized by the placement head and i was the placement head and i think that's what i realized that i love leadership i love leading teams and i used to have our own office and you know people who get got paid full time reporting into me at the age of 20 so that, that those are the kind of opportunities that you get in the university and you that's why some of the best entrepreneurs come from that place so how did how did that even happen like how do you end up leading a team of 300 are those 300 students or actually 300 people who are not students at the university but maybe are full, hired full time yeah so you know it's the so first of all i think i always wanted to get one of the best jobs of out of i right and best jobs for me at that point was just whatever paid the most amount of money which was banking and private equity so i only sat for banking and private equity i also knew my interviewing skills are not the best because i was just about to learn english language and you know i was sitting with people who came from very very privileged backgrounds and who came from debating and what not so really the idea was how do you 
create a profile which is so well rounded that people would love to work with you so i used to i used, you know i went for an exchange i was topper in my uh, department i was you know also playing sports and excelling in that and hence i also wanted to have a position of responsibility where i can showcase the leadership and the initiatives that i can bring in so so i started doing groundwork to get into that role it is a very difficult role the cream of the college is trying to get into that role so you really have to compete extremely hard so i put in a lot of hard work put in a lot of groundwork and then you know i became the head of placements now really out of this 300 we have 20 full time staff which is like people who are salaried and working for you and you have roughly 250 to 60 students across internships placements and and what not and to give you a scale of this you really have annual budget where you know you need to and you have a full fledged office where there are 50 60 people sitting you have a pantry you have a the hotel next to there where all the executives of this com- uh, your companies can come and stay so it really operates at a massive scale and imagine you are giving jobs to 1000 plus students in those 15 days in the best universities in the world and you are dealing with the heads of mckinsey's bcgs blackstones googles and what not so that's where really the personality comes out because you know even if you couldn't speak the language even if you never met anybody that senior in life and suddenly you are in that position you have to deal with them you know some people might feel intimidated but some people might use this as an opportunity to just really uplift themselves and that's what i did i think it's pretty interesting that you got that kind of role while you were still in university because i mean you spent some time in nomura as well for i think four years and then you did your corp dev role but i feel like this role while you're in university is probably the most similar if i may say to what you're doing at multiplier because part of what you do is related to talent acquisition right no absolutely i think more than more than the so maybe what we do is we help companies employ talent globally without having to set up their legal entity or worry about payroll benefits access and so on so forth essentially we don't do talent acquisition the companies just need to identify their talent but they don't need to open an entity we put this person on our payroll and we take your payroll benefit taxes employment contract leave expenses and what not but to your point you are absolutely right i think running an organization at that level with defined timelines and metrics is something that i learned there because obviously when i joined numura i was an analyst when i did my corp dev role it was i was not a the majority shareholder of the business so really the 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 stakes as a placement head at iit were really high and you are literally playing with the career of the smartest people in india so it, it it you can't sleep at night <laughs> what was the most difficult part of that role as a placement manager so a few few things you know before i became the placement manager there was a practice of all these big consulting firms private equity firms hosting dinners for candidates and in those dinners identifying the people that they want to work with and i stopped that practice i thought this was not right you can't judge people based on their table manners and how they're holding forks and what not that's just not done i think this can be learned in a day or two which i did myself got a lot of pushback and really? uh, the pushback from <laughs> yes i mean it we, it is it is it is incredibly important for these farms to meet you before the interview process so that they can roughly decide which are the candidates that they want to hire Right. Imagine a dinner hosted by a McKinsey where there all the top McKinsey partners are there, or 
BCG or all top BCG APAC heads are there and then they are, you are interacting with them and they are literally judging you based on the questions that you ask and how you're eating the food and whatnot. So I thought this is this is something because I, I came from that background which I, I, I didn't know how to eat properly or I didn't know uh, I didn't know how to ask the right questions to these people and I felt this is unethical and I stopped that practice and I got so much pushback to the level that hey we would pull out I said it's fine you want to pull out be my guest you know at some point you know nobody can pull out because everybody wants this talent yeah everyone wants the IIT people (laughs) yeah so you you knew you knew it's in your favor but the tactics that they will also use is hey you know you're also going to appear for your interviews. The great part there was I interned with Namura and I got my uh, pre-placement offer. So I was really was not intimidated by any of this. So I said, okay, no problem. I'm going to stop this and I'm going to stick with this. And the other worst part is all the senior people in those firms are also ex-IITians. And you know all of them because they are all your alumni. And they would use that tool to put pressure on you. But I think we did a great job of just not caving under the pressure and really removing anything soft from that process and making it a pure uh, merit-based approach. So I want to ask you as well, like you stayed in investment banking for almost four years, I guess coming out of IIT, it's probably one of your dream jobs, right? How did you get from Numura to being VP of Corp Dev at a startup? And was that a difficult decision for you to make? So, you know, I, I was not thinking much during my college days. Whatever paid well, I, I was ready to take it because I just thought, you know, I want to make a lot more money in life. And banking always paid well. There were not enough private equity opportunities at that point. So banking was the natural choice. And I interned with them. I loved it. And I took the offer. So I worked there for five years, a couple of years in Tokyo and then two, three years in, in Singapore covering Southeast Asia. And uh, it's an interesting story how I joined Cobdev role. One of my very good friends, who is now on my board from Sequoia, who is also on the board of that company, and and one of these days, you know, after a few drinks, he said, "Hey, uh, why don't you uh, look at some of the portfolio roles?" And I, I think at that point in time, I was interviewing for some VC firms myself. So I said, "Hey, you know, uh, actually, I was I was not very aware of what happens in tech startups." Because I was from a very traditional industry. I was doing oil and gas banking when I left Nomura. So he introduced me to the founder and I met the founder and I realized that the founder was a very charismatic person. I was always sure of my finance skills or you know hard skills, but I always thought tomorrow if I want to be a founder myself, I need to learn how to pitch. I need to learn how to motivate employees or just be charismatic. And I met him and I realized, oh, he he is one of the most charismatic people you would meet. And then I met him and I realized that I can learn so much from him. And that's where I joined the, the company. It was not an easy decision because going from a banking salary to a startup salary, it's it's very painful. And your lifestyle needs to change and you have to, you know, think about the long game of pairs working out and you know, immediate lifestyle suffers, which, which of, of course suffered for me as well. But then what you get out of that experience, it's invaluable. And it's always up to you what you make out of it. So I spent one and a half years there. And that's where I thought about, hey, you know, building a company in today's era, it's possible for one and all. It's not limited to people who are rich or who come from family businesses or who have tons of money to start with. Because 
you can get access to capital you can get access to leads via digital marketing i was unaware of all of this so i learned hey, you spend money on google your customers come and reach out to you oh insane let's do that so that's where i i thought hey uh, in today's world building a new business is accessible to everyone and it's not limited to select few you mentioned at the time when you considered the startup role you're also interviewing for some vc firms but what made you even consider shifting from investment banking into another career I mean, lots of people would also just choose to stay in investment banking as well. So, what maybe prompted the the shift in mindset, or at least the openness to to shift careers? Maybe a few things. One is I was working for a Japanese firm. I think in a Japanese firm, there's always a ceiling. If you are not a Japanese, that was that that's one thought process I always had at the back of my mind. Second, I'm the kind of person that if I I would always want things that excite me. I can't do a very similar load for too long. I always want things to be exciting and hard and challenging, but I'm passionately solve for them. So I spent a couple of years in in Tokyo, and then I knew I'm done there. And then moved to Singapore, and I think eventually the uh, plan is to move to US. But then that's where I met my friend. That's where my friend talked me out of it and said, "Hey, it's you know where do you stop? Then you go to US, you get bored in two years." and the plan at some point i was also thinking of applying for uh, mba which is a very traditional part taken by people of my profile who come from iit international experience ib consulting experience and and that's where i thought hey you know maybe uh, you know if mba was even an option then you always diversify your profile with one more job experience and that's where venture capitalist profile was something that i was considering but i think i'm always very thankful to my friend who talked me out of it and explained you know what is it like working in a startup and and all the learnings that you can have and then how did you get from working at a startup to deciding to build your own i mean you mentioned earlier that you had the idea but when did you start thinking okay it's time for me to test this idea or start building it out and at that time were you fully committed to building it out or was it just like a test you know i was in charge of international expansion as well so expanded to australia expanded to japan it took roughly 7 8 months to open a bank account in australia and australia is a developed market by any measure you know it's one of the most developed markets in asia if you consider australia and asia and then you go to japan and it takes things are even more worse and i thought hey we are going towards a world which is more global talent crunch is becoming more prevalent and hence everybody would need to look out for talent in not just their own geography or zip code but across the globe and if you are clear in that thought in your mind and you knew if world is going to go global and globally so broken there has to be a better solution and that's what i wanted to start my own business but really i didn't act on it until covid came and obviously covid was it did a lot of harm to the society but thankfully for me i was working from home that was the first time like everybody and that was the first time i was working from home and i felt quite underutilized and i felt quite useless and i thought hey maybe now is the time that i can pull the trigger and start it so i started working on it for a couple of months did a lot of research talked to my friends and i thought oh there's a lot of you know meat in this and that's where i put together the team raised some money and got started full time and then how did that work out for you when you were starting out with the idea and starting test to test it start doing the research was it uh, more daunting over time or were you getting more excited over time what was the what were the early few months like it's still very daunting till today and i'm sure it will remain daunting till till the time we are doing this but 
I think good part about Singapore is Amanda. It's a very small village. Like some of my VC friends got to know I'm building the company. Till date, I don't know how they got to know about it. And I was still in my old business, and the founder of the old business was also willing to invest in the business. And and our lead investor was also the lead investor of my last firm. Everybody knew I'm leaving, and I resigned and whatnot. So. And they reached out and said, "Hey, we would love to support you." And all these investors supported and funded us when we didn't even have the business, when we didn't even have, when I was still in my old company. So that really made it easy. And at that, and at some level, that also gave you a push that if people think it's a great idea, they are willing to bet their money, right? Might as well just get full time and start doing it seriously. But I think it was daunting, and we we wouldn't know. I did not know. We did not know how it would pan out, but we were very excited to do this. We, I mean, I saw the pain first time, so I knew there is there is a market for it, and there are existing traditional players who are making healthy margins on it. But really, you know, it started to pick up when we quit our jobs and we started to do it full time. And I think something I want to ask you, which you mentioned earlier before we started recording is that you guys are not what you guys were like a year ago. So could you share maybe the different changes or what's new nowadays? Yeah, so I would say today we are a full-fledged HR solution. We help companies employ talent globally in 175 countries where they don't have entities so that we can employ them on our payroll, run payroll benefit taxes and whatnot. Now we can also run payroll in countries where you have entities and we've also launched a basic HRIS system. So let's say you are a Singapore headquartered business. You have teams in 10 countries. Five countries, you have entities. Five countries, you have entities. We'll be able to run payroll for all these 10 countries where in five countries, these folks will be on our entity payroll. And the remaining five countries, they'll be on your entity, but we'll still run payroll for them and insurance for them. And we can also give you a basic HRIS where you can have org chart, where you can have expense, leave, and whatnot. So really the positioning is now is one HR system for your entire global team. What are some misconceptions about multiplier that you run into pretty often? And I guess this is your chance to bust them. <laughs> one of the things that we always hear is, hey, you guys must be strong in Asia. But really, yes, we are strong in Asia. We are market leaders in, in Singapore and Asia. But really the idea is, this business is very global in nature. For example, we have 100 plus of our own entities, which is bigger than our biggest competitor. We ran active payroll in 100 plus countries this month, from East Afri- East Europe to Africa to Latin America to East Asia to Southeast Asia, South Asia and everything. Biggest revenue comes from US, which is the uh, biggest market for us. So the biggest transaction flow originates from US and also ends in US. A lot of people are in our payroll in US. So a lot of Indian firms, Singaporean firms, which are trying to explore US market, use Multiplier as their launch platform. So really, yes, we are we are headquartered in, in Singapore, but we are a global firm where we can help in 175 countries. And, and yes, we are leader in Asia, but our biggest revenue comes from US. I listened to your podcast before and you mentioned Philippines. You're Filipino a lot. I'm Filipino myself and I see a lot of the, the talent here and how, how it's been shifting a bit. But I'd love to hear from you. Um, is Philippines one of the biggest sources of talent that you see on your platform right now? Yes, sir. 
yes, I think top two is India and then followed by Philippines. And it's quite natural because at the end of the day, you can't beat macro, right? Essentially, the India and Philippines are two biggest English-speaking talent pools of the world, which have always been working multiple shifts for companies from East and West. So definitely Philippines is something, one of the top three markets for us in terms of the places where clients want to hire from. And you mentioned also earlier that you wanted to learn from, I guess, your previous company and the previous founder that you wanted to learn how to pitch, motivate people and be a bit more charismatic. How do you feel like you you learned to do that the most? Is it from observing the founder or did you actually spend a lot of time, I don't know, in some other way to, to learn those things? I was kind of like his right-hand man and I did everything for him and I I always accompanied him for all the board meetings, all the investor pitches, all the internal leadership meetings and so on and so forth. And I, you know, somebody who's a fast learner and try to work hard and is very driven, it's not very difficult to absorb from a great personality just being just by being in their vicinity. So I, I learned a lot from them in terms of how they pitch, how they invoke emotions of massive FOMO in investors, how they create analogies of what they are building with existing massive tech firms so that people can visualize if this works, what it, what, what, how big it might be in the future. So those are the few things that I learned and I absolutely used while building multiplier and still continue to use it and continue to gain from it. I'd love to hear more about your personal experience as a founder as well, now that you've been doing it for almost three years, if not already three years now. What are the kinds of sacrifices or personal sacrifices you had to make as a a startup founder? Yeah, that's a very interesting question. So, I mean, it does. So being a founder, as you know, before I started Multiplier, I would always tell people, hey, startups are great. Startups are cool. You should definitely bring startup. What are you doing in a bank and private equity or a consulting firm? But now I always take a very measured approach in advising people. I don't think this is for everyone. And I I would, you know, ask a few questions before advising people now. And quite often I tell them, hey, you are in a great job and maybe that's something that works better for you and you should stay there. So absolutely, it does take a lot of toll. It takes a lot of toll on your health. You know, you go through the cycles of, you know, overeating, over drinking, and then when you're stressed and then not sleeping well. And if something is broken in the business, you're always on the point. And if it's a global business, then, you know, working across the time zones, it takes a lot of toll. It takes a lot of toll on your relationships, uh, you know, uh, you, not just in the sense of not spending enough time, but whenever you're spending time with them, if this is your baby, you'll always be thinking about this and and not be fully present. So, it takes a lot of toll and actually it takes a lot of practice to understand how to live this life, which I I hope it should come naturally, but doesn't definitely come naturally to me. I had to learn a lot, many things myself. So, so it's definitely not for everyone and it's definitely a lifestyle choice for next five to 10 years of life. And if somebody wants to start a business, they should be ready to, they should be excited about this lifestyle. If not excited, they should be ready to, embrace it as and when it comes and learn how to manage your stress manage your relationships for example one thing that i do these days is try not to work on weekends first two three years we worked on every weekend and my co-founders are are with family and children and 
uh, it, it takes a lot of toll on the relationships and if the relationships are not working out properly you will not be able to give 100% to the business as well so some of those notions some of these deeper nuances you only realize once you spend more time building the business out and then you somehow find that equilibrium that works for you where you can take care of your personal and private life as well as your health i completely agree with you i feel like running back for the past almost two years i think people around me say oh startups are so exciting or they feel a pressure to maybe try it out or feel like if they are to start a business today, the only sensible option would be to, to start a startup because maybe lots of people are talking about it around them. But I feel like I've taken a similar approach and remind them like, you know, startups are not the only option. You're not worse than somebody else because you chose to run a traditional business. You're not backwards. You're not less capable. It's just not for everyone. And you don't want to go into it for the wrong reasons because it's a hard, difficult commitment, especially once you raise funding, right? <laughs> it is. And, you know, again, it managing other people's money, which we call OPM, other people's money. It's also, actually, if you think about it, there are two sides to it. Other people should only give you money if they think you're going to manage their money as you manage your own money. And as a founder, you should always think about, yes, this is your baby and you're going to, you're passionate about this. But also, I don't know, if you're taking somebody else's money, you have to make the returns for them. So, Instead of this adding as a another pressure point on you, if your thought process is I took their money and I'm it's my fiduciary duty to now make it back for them with the desired returns and whatnot, or at least manage in a manner where I'm giving them enough transparency on how we are running the business, what are the different metrics, and give them enough opportunity to share their opinions and and expertise. So really you know, it's important that you feel responsible about other people's money. Again, you know, how this will end up, nobody can predict. But do you do you personally feel that you have a fiduciary responsibility to treat it as if it's your money and, and do the capital allocation in the manner it should be done? That is what you are responsible for. And if you feel that responsibility internally, you will never feel pressured because you're just wired in a manner to spend money wisely. And I also want to ask you about how it is now. I think, as I said earlier, I think the latest news is that you raised about 60 million in a Series B. And so that's the stage you guys are currently at now. What are the things that you used to do in the earlier days that you don't do nowadays or want to advise founders to not do when they hit this stage? Because I feel like it's very easy sometimes to go on autopilot and do the same things you used to do without realizing it's a totally different stage and it calls for different actions or different mindsets. I think, it, you know, for us, it changes every quarter because every quarter you are learning what what were you doing wrong and what you need to do right. I think one of the most important things that we learned very recently is the role of just brand awareness, marketing and so on and so forth. So if I were to go back, I, I would say I would spend a lot more time on branding, market awareness and all of these softer aspects way early in our journey. A lot of things, you know, one of the things that we do these days is how can we decentralize decision making so that not everything comes back to founders, right? It's important that things move in even in your absence. So, like, we are looking for a CMO person, a, a CFO, a CRO, a VP partnerships, all of this, so that now we can scale to the next level. So, when the go to market that works from one to 10, 10 to 20 doesn't work, and you go from 20 to 100 million dollars. And it's constantly evolving. So 
always as a founder and a ceo always look for that next set of milestones next set of highs that will deliver the growth that you need and talking a little bit more about yourself what are some things about you that maybe your coworkers would be surprised to hear about you maybe it's a hobby maybe it's something else i think it's a very interesting question you know one thing that we've done at multicar is from day one we've made our values then our culture very clear which is of trust transparency and thoroughness which is we are to easily describe we are a set of people who operate by making the least noise possible in the most humble manner without speaking much english uh, as i like to call it and really move thinking that everything is very urgent and that's the kind of interview process that we design for the people that we want to bring in and i personally operate in that manner where you know we can make the most amount of progress overnight without anybody knowing about it and without anybody bragging about it so we believe in communicating very clearly and very often so in my town halls everybody knows where the firm is what are we thinking what's our plan for six months what if it that doesn't work out what are we thinking let me give you details so it's very clear to our people what are their expectations and what's the kind of culture that we want to be part of and outside of work when you're not working what can we usually find you doing or what are your interests outside of work i love to uh, hang out with my friends and and go for nice bars i love to play sports so i play cricket i play badminton i play squash i play golf i like to read a lot of international politics books so espionage international politics China US war all of these are very very interesting topics to me and I said my brother is one of the senior government bureaucrats in India so the government functioning and different countries relations these are extremely exciting topics for me which I read a lot about I think you mentioned before like early in the conversation that you used to play volleyball but you didn't mention volleyball just now do you not play it anymore is it more difficult nowadays these days yeah I, I when I came to Singapore for the first time I picked it up but these days I haven't played volleyball in last two three years uh, <laughs> it's quite funny because at some point it used to be my life I don't know I think maybe just avenues or people and somehow you know you develop new interest in life but but haven't gone back to it for some time now Do you have any new interests nowadays Let's see nothing in particular i mean i've been playing a lot more golf a lot more squash than i used to before yeah nothing that comes to mind amanda do you find that you pursue more sports or do more activities when things are a lot more stressful at work or do you feel like you do less of them when things are more stressful cuz there are some people who are one way or the other right when where do you fall between the two i hope I can exercise and work and play a lot of sports when I'm stressed. But but I think working out is a very integral part of my life. I try to work out 3 to 4 times a week properly. But I think sports has always been a part of my life. So whether I'm stressed or I'm not stressed, I would always be playing sports. It just makes me think very clear. Like I think if I don't exercise or don't play sports for a week, I would not be a great CEO for the firm. So or i would not be actually it, it just makes it gives you enough oxygen and you think so clearly and you can see that hey you are thinking about this 15 things but in reality these are the only couple of things that you should have been worried about so i'm always trying my best to not stop exercising in place of course 
And you mentioned your brothers in politics. What's the dynamic between you guys when you meet? Because you sort of operate in very different spaces, but you grew up, you know, in the same household and with very similar influences. He's not in politics. He's a bureaucrat, which is like one level below politics. But we we barely get to see each other these days because we both are very very busy. But when we see each other, I think we both have keen interest in discussing. what's happening in the country or what's happening in other countries or and we are political ideology is also slightly different he's very very left aligned and i'm slightly more center to left so we'll always debate on uh, the ongoing policies and what not but he's much more well read than me and his opinions are much more well rounded so more often than not it's a learning opportunity for me to hear him speak do you think there's a benefit from keeping up with politics with your role at multiplier because you do work around a lot of geographies there's a lot of compliance or do you think it's still more of a hobby not as directly related to anything in your work has it ever been useful i guess <laughs> you know i wish it was useful uh, because <laughs> if i can somehow control my mind i would read a lot more business books than i than i read for politics but really it's a hobby right you know it's funny because if you don't read what you like You won't be able to read what you need. So if I don't read a like very recently, I read a book on Obama's life, and then if I and then while reading that because it's so interesting, I can also finish a couple of business-related books, which is very helpful to grow as a CEO. But again, politics is very much a hobby, which really does not directly help me in my role. And I guess to close, I have one question that I ask everybody that. We bring on for the podcast, and that's outside of work. So outside of multiplier, what's one thing you want to achieve in your personal life? And the timeline is any time; could be something achieved in one month, one year, ten years, thirty years. So feel free to mention whatever comes to mind first. I would love to go to politics one day. Really? Yeah. And what would you want to to do? I would love to be a chief minister or a, a MLA or a MP or whatever. The thing is, this is because you are such a global citizen. You don't know where you would end up being, and that's why it's so open. But politics is something that always has excited me and excites me, and hence, you know, that's something that I would love to do if I have an opportunity and the required resources for it. I think that's interesting because that does happen with some tech entrepreneurs in Indonesia, right? Mm-hmm. Is it something that they started doing in India, bringing in tech folks? I haven't seen it yet. I haven't seen it yet, but they do bring them for bureaucratic positions. But uh, I know, haven't seen. Uh, I know, I know the case that you're talking about in Indonesia. I haven't personally heard about that in India. But again, uh, you never know. It's a long way to go. So I hope I'll see more of those cases in the near future. Only time will tell if you are the first, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining me. It was really interesting to hear more about your background, more about what life is like at Multiplier, and how it's been for you as a founder. Now, I really learned a lot, and thanks again. Thank you, Amanda. It was a pleasure to be here. <laughs>